Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the PR Week, which is PR Week's weekly podcast for everything going on in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Frank Washcook. I'm your guest host for this week, and I have a terrific guest for you. It is Dominic Carr. He's the VP of Communications at Lyft. Dominic, welcome to the podcast. Frank, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, really looking forward to chatting with you today. And I have a great guest co-host for you as well this week, and that's none other than Ewan Larkin, PR Week's reporter. How are you, Ewan? I'm well. Thanks for asking, Frank. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, uh, Dominic, before we get to your career and your your origin story, so to speak, I want to ask you a little bit about the news of the week, because there are a lot of headlines out there uh, about Lyft creating a media division. So what's that all about? Yeah, I mean, I think we're always looking at ways to add value both for riders and drivers and for the company. And uh, we obviously have a lot of people who see our cars around, a lot of people in the back of cars. And so we started to look at ways that we could expand uh, opportunities there for advertisers. So early days, just announced the business this week, but people will be able to buy advertising on uh, the top of cars and tablets in the back of cars. Um, some of our bike share stations, I think people think of us obviously as the ride share company, but we're a big, big operator of bike share systems across the country as well. Um, and so we think there's some interesting combination of a great audience meets great technology, people with time on their hands um, and excited about the opportunities, even if it's early days just now. Yeah, I have to tell you, when I uh, first signed up for City Bike, it must have been a uh, 14 months ago or so. I had no idea Lyft was behind that and Lyft was powering it. And uh, it was it was a surprise when I when I signed up and, um, you know, no complaints so far. No, it's it's uh, you're not the only one that put it that way. Maybe that's a criticism of the comms team. But uh, yeah, we're, we've got between City Bike in New York and uh, Bay Wheels in the Bay Area and Divi in Chicago and Capital Bike Share in D.C. Those are all Lyft operated systems with you know, partnership with the local city. Um, and I would say to you, you know, one of the things we've learned from the pandemic is that kind of micromobility solution is in big demand. We're seeing sort of record ridership and a lot of growth. Um, so it's a really exciting part of the business. Yeah, for sure. Not a criticism at all of the comms team, by the way, <laughs> not at all. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you promoted this media division story this week. Um, was there any sort of special push you gave it? Any, any kind of media relations strategy or tactics you can tell us about? Yeah, we're just, I'm super proud of the team. They took something that, you know, was new for us and may not have been the biggest news to some people. And they got very thoughtful and very creative about it. And honestly, just used their expertise to figure out who would find it most interesting. Um, and we actually went to the journal and we talked about it through the lens of sort of the marketing and the CMO lens um, and this opportunity to reach new audiences in new ways. And so that was the sort of curtain raiser on the announcement. Uh, and then we saw a bunch of really strong follow-on coverage too. So people here super happy with um, the way we were able to, to introduce the new division to the world. Yeah, I bet. It looks like it got a lot of great placements from the journal onwards. So um, I want to go back a little bit more than a year ago because you joined Lyft uh, mid-2021, still right. peak pandemic in a lot of ways. You know, I think at, at that point where, where, you know, people are just getting shots in arms. Um, That's right. And um, this is it's travel, it's tourism, it's it's getting around town. These are these are areas hard hit by the pandemic. Uh, what were the things that you focused on uh, when you jumped into the role in 2021? Because whenever I talk to people that took new roles during the pandemic, 
it always seems a little daunting to me and a lot of uncertainty. So what were the things that you focused on first? Yeah, I mean, no, no question. The business had a tough couple of years. As, as you sort of say, this is, was about people getting around and people were just getting around less. Um, and so the business was in a tough spot. But I think one of the things I really admire about the company is they have, they definitely have a long-term perspective and a long-term view. There's a big, bold goal about kind of improving people's lives with the best world's best transportation and a big focus on, you know, how to make consumer transportation better. And so the leadership, John, uh, and Logan, the two co-founders, were pretty clear with me that they really wanted me to build a team for the long term, to think about this big goal, to think about the ambition the company had, and to build a comms team uh, that was going to be successful for the long term. So we had a great team of people, but we knew we needed to add significantly to the team. We knew we needed to add significantly to the capabilities. We knew we needed to sort of build a new organizational model that was sort of fit for the ambition that the company had across all these different modes of transportation. Um, and so that was what we did the first year. Honestly, I felt a little bit like a full-time recruiter. I spent a lot of time in recruiting, but couldn't be happy. I took this great group of people that were already there, and then we added great new hires from Amazon, a couple of people from Apple, a couple of people from Meta, people from the federal government, and really built this kind of thing, I think, a really powerful team that I'm, I'm super proud to work with. Uh, and then, you know, we, we started to think about new capabilities. I think we had a strength in PR and media relations, and we really wanted to build out new capabilities in digital and social and what we've been calling brand journalism. And so... We built that team out um, and they're just getting up and getting started. We wanted to think ways about more ways to use data in a powerful way. Uh, and so we've done that. We retooled our agency roster, brought on, you know, we communications as our sort of primary agency partner. Um, and then we kind of reeled the team. We had a real focus on getting people deep into the business so that all of our senior business leaders had a comms team that they could lean on, that there was depth of expertise. We also beefed up the kind of cross lift brand storytelling team. Um, and as I say, this investment in content and brand journalism and all of that, whilst also making sure that internal and external communications were integrated, just given the importance of internal communications at times of change and transformation. Um, so we had day to day work to, to, to worry about for sure. And, you know, running a transportation company in the depths of the pandemic is a challenge. But what I appreciated most about the, the remit I had at Lyft was this opportunity to build a team that was going to serve the company in the future and a, a ton of support for doing that work um, over the last 12 months. What kind of new jobs did you create as a part of this? I remember us talking about uh, bringing on an editor, editor-in-chief type role. Um, but what, what type of new roles that maybe you hadn't worked with before did you create or did you bring over to Lyft yeah. as a part of that expansion? Because I'm, I'm hearing about a lot of new to, new job titles out there that I've never heard <laughs> about before. No, you're right. And I don't know that it's new to me. I certainly learned a lot from uh, work that other folks and, and I'd been involved in at Microsoft. But yeah, I'd say the biggest change was this focus on, on finding ways to tell our own story directly, you know, whether you call it content, whether you call it brand journalism. We hired an editor in chief, uh, Jason Tanz, a great guy, he came over from Apple. He'd previously spent maybe 11 years at Wired, uh, in various, uh, roles on the journalism side and really trying to build out this kind of capability of finding and telling our own story, not, not as a replacement for working with reporters or the media, but as a complement to it and thinking about the way that those stories can come to life online and all the interesting creative opportunities we have with all of the social platforms that exist today. So I'd say that's the biggest change for us um, was this investment in we've been calling internally the brand journalism team. Um, and so we've got people with a very different profile. We've got people who have journalism backgrounds, who are editors, who are content creators, video, videographers, graphic designers, uh, writers, um, all of those skill sets that uh, we've brought together in this team. We're still building. It's not done yet. Uh, but I'd say that's the biggest change in terms of the kind of roles that we've added to the team. 
Was there anything you didn't expect when you got into the role? Lyft is such a personal company where, where people are giving rides to customers and, and, you know, there's so many different touch points. Was there anything you just didn't expect in the role that, that kind of hit you? You know, I'd say two things. One is um, there's definitely a strong sense of ownership amongst team members, employees at the company. I think that dates back to it's a relatively young company. Obviously, it's a much smaller company uh, than Microsoft. And so the culturally, there is this sort of strong sense of every team member feels like an owner. And so we spend a lot of time on internal communications and team member engagement, helping people understand the business strategy, listening to feedback, helping people understand the direction of the company. And I think every company does that. And I think every company does that more than ever. Um, but I think somewhat as a function of the age of the company, this you know relatively young company with people who had joined pre-IPO, it really felt like there's a strong sense of a strong sense of involvement and and ownership that uh, folks, uh, team members, employees at Lyft have about the company, and so that's been um, fun to kind of flex that muscle. Uh, as I said, I don't think it's completely different to what you see elsewhere, but it's very very prevalent here uh, in terms of people expecting and um, wanting to learn more about what the company's doing and where it's going and where we're succeeding and where we have challenges. There's a, a strong sense of sort of internal transparency and internal communications and engagement that, um, you know, I've not seen everywhere to that level, if I put it that way. Fair enough. So, um, look, there, uh, there's no secret. These, the, the leaks about Uber, uh, you know, were reported on over the past couple of right. months. Very controversial subject. Is this something that at Lyft, because you have a very similar service and the companies are very similar in, in some ways, that you also have to proactively, you know, message around and, and essentially say we're different or we do things differently. Uh, does that have any effect on the way you do business? You know, one of the things that has sort of struck me in the time I've been at Lyft is the depth of affection that people have for the Lyft brand. And I've actually been sort of pleasantly surprised at how much differentiation there is between Lyft and Uber. And that I think the, the consensus is Lyft has always been a different kind of a company. We're in the same business. We're trying to, you know, serve the same markets. But culturally, um, I think people think of Lyft differently. They think of the internal culture. I think one of the, one of the biggest accomplishments that, uh, accomplishments that John and Logan, uh, the two co-founders can point to is they built just this amazing culture. Um, and I think, you know, I, I won't speak to Uber, but I'll speak to us. I think people do see the two companies as different from that perspective. So, you know, surprisingly little of the Uber reporting has sort of spilled over to pull in Lyft, if I can put it that way. Fair enough. One thing that struck me looking at your, your resume, your CV, is just that you've worked at a lot of really strong organizations and strong communications organizations. And, um, you know, I always say someday we're going to do this feature about uh, the equivalent of the, the NFL coaching <laughs> trees in which we we look at what uh, what communications executives that went on to lead organizations that other organizations came from which companies. And there are a lot from Microsoft yeah. where you worked for a number of years and there are a lot from GE where you worked before, too. And um, so what are the, the things you learned as you build out this organization whether it's from, from Microsoft or whether it's from GE that you, you want to bring over to, to Lyft? No, great questions. I mean, two, two great organizations for sure. Um, you know, Microsoft is, was a bigger part of my life. Obviously, I was there a lot longer and, and more recently. Um, 
I was incredibly lucky, I will say, to have the opportunity to work for Frank Shaw, who leads communications at Microsoft. I know you know him well. Um, and for Brad Smith, who was my, my primary internal stakeholder, he's the president of the company. Both great human beings and both incredibly uh, accomplished communications professionals. Obviously, Brad, that's not his job, but he just is a great communications person. Um, and I learned an enormous amount from working with both of them. And I think a couple of things I would call out. One is they both really encouraged everybody in a comms role to to step outside their lane or their silo and not feel like they're in this narrow functional role. Their feedback was always, you know, people in comms have this broad perspective. They are just by nature of the role, they're across a lot of different things. By nature of the role, they're in touch with people outside the company and can bring really valuable intelligence and information back about how people are viewing the company and what's the atmosphere and the attitude like. And so they really encouraged everybody, every level in comms, but particularly for people in leadership roles to really play a broad leadership role in whatever group they were supporting and not, not just be the communications person, if I can put it that way. Um, so I learned that a great deal from both of them. And I think um, that's a really powerful lesson for everybody in the function. I think the other thing that I learned, uh, particularly at Microsoft, is a lot of the issues are pretty complicated and nuanced. I worked in sort of where, where you know, tech meets the world and policy and sort of everything from privacy and cybersecurity to AI and litigation and legal issues. Um, and I think the thing I learned there was for communications people to be really successful, they really, really have to deeply understand the brief, the material that they're working with, the topic or issue or business group that they are partnering with. Um, and I always felt like we had a harder job. We had to know communications and we had to know the business deeply and intimately. Um, and so I think that's something I try and instill in folks on our team. You're, you're, you're not going to be a great partner to the people you work with unless you have this really deep understanding of the issues that they're working on uh, and the things that take them. And then I think the third thing from them was just is you've got to take some risks. Um, you know, it feels good to be safety first in the moment. No, don't take any risks. Nobody's going to get upset. But in the long run, that's really not going to drive forward um, the things that you want to drive forward. It's not going to help build the company's reputation. It's not going to help build trust and credibility. And so taking risks and trying to take risks in an authentic way is something else that I think they, um, I learned a lot from, from, from Microsoft in particular. I think you make a really good point about uh, knowing how the business works. And I think that's a great tip for any younger PR pros that might be listening uh, today. But I, I think that's a terrific point for, for everybody across organizations. Um, you mentioned before reworking the company's agency relationships once you get on board. And, of course, you work with the WE. Um, and, and you and I, in a prior conversation, you, you had this great quote about how uh, in-house teams get the agency teams that they deserve, yeah. essentially. And, and I thought that, that was philosophical, for one, but I thought it was a really important, interesting point to make, um, you know, about, about introspection and the way in-house teams do their job. Um, so, so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what do you think makes a good client-agency partnership? Uh, how do you get the most out of your agencies? How do you get what you really want out of your agencies? Um, and, and really, you know, what makes the best agency relationships yeah. tick? I think um, I do. I do. I do really believe in the kind of you get the agency you deserve. I learned that lesson early on uh, when I was at Ford, and we had you know we broke up with an agency because it wasn't going well, and we pretty quickly realized after we broke up with them that it was mostly our fault, and we rehired them two years later. So um, I learned that lesson along the way. For me, I think, you know, first and foremost, um, 
you really have to understand that it is a team effort and that there isn't this hierarchy of the client makes these decisions, the agency team system decisions. I've always found us being most successful when we can really deeply integrate our agency partners into the business. And to some extent, um, folks don't always see the, the dividing line between the in-house team and the agency team. I think the more, you know, it's so a little bit of an extension of the point about knowing the issues. The more the team is integrated, the more they have access to information, the more they're showing up directly in conversations with internal stakeholders, just the better informed they are, the, the, the more uh, context they have to decisions that have been made uh, and the more that they can, they, uh, they can contribute there. I think the other thing I think is to really protect the agency's ability to speak truth to power, including to all the folks on the internal team. I think sometimes internal team members, you know, obviously get caught up in managing relationships and stakeholders and senior people. And I think the agency can be a little bit more fearless uh, in providing feedback on what isn't working or which direction things would go. So I think, you know, as, a, as somebody who is the client for an agency team, I want to make sure that they feel confident that they can um that they can speak up and that they can provide that really you know, transparent feedback that sometimes teams need on what is or isn't working. Uh, so that reminds me of my second thing. And then I think the third thing is try and think about how you best want the agency. What is it you really want the agency to do? Where can they add the most value? So we definitely want them integrated. We definitely want them connected, but we also want to say, hey, listen, we're going to protect your time to go work on this big idea or bring this new idea to us or bring a fresh perspective. So being judicious about how and when you, you use them and what exactly you're asking of the agency teams, I think, is is super important. Interesting stuff. Um, one other question I want to ask you, because, of course, and our, our listeners may have noticed this by now from your accent, but you're from across the pond, obviously. And um, what do you see as the major media differences between the U.S. and the U.K.? Because I, I've heard a lot of different opinions about this over the years, and I want to get yours. But what do you see as the major differences between the U.S. media market and the U.K. media market? Yeah, great question. And I would say I, I actually, just by the nature of the way my career has worked out, I've, I've worked much, much more extensively in the U.S. and in Asia than I've ever worked in the U.K. Um, you know, I would say I think the U.K. market is just, um, it's much tougher. I think um, I think reporters and editors have strong opinions on things. The press uh, in the U.S., uh, in the U.K., rather, um, I think has a clear agenda on issues that they care about and they're advancing. And so it, I think, um, you know, frankly, I think it, it's a tougher market in many ways, a more critical market, a more skeptical market um, for in-house folks to work in. Interesting. All right. I am going to turn this over to you and Larkin, our PR Weeks reporter, uh, in a second. But uh, Dominic, thanks again for taking the time and hoping to get your opinions on some of these topics that you feel strongly about yourself um, over the next few minutes. So Dominic, thanks again. So Ewan, the big, big hard news story of the past two weeks, of course, is the Choco Taco and its uh, retirement, or maybe not its retirement. Tell us a little bit about that and the communications effort that went into responding to it. Yeah, this is the one that everybody's talking about. So as you may have heard from almost everywhere across the country recently, uh, Klondike's beloved Chaco Taco was retired last month and it left many people heartbroken, but it actually did cause a pretty unique communications issue for Unilever, which owns Klondike, and uh, agency partner Edelman. Um, Edelman is working with Unilever's in-house digital agency and helping guide social strategy for Klondike and its day-to-day response, um, its earned response. Essentially, they're trying to figure out how to capitalize on all the press that this has gotten. 
And what they've done is they've asked consumers on social media what to do, what the what the brand should do with the last 912 Chaco Tacos, which has presented some interesting suggestions, such as a Chaco Taco musical, which personally gets my vote, uh, where the products would be handed out during intermission. Um, but as of now, the Chaco Taco is discontinued, though the brand did also tweet that it may came or may make a return to ice cream trucks in the future. Um, a unique case, but pretty a pretty perfect example of how much influence consumers can have on a brand and the power of social media um, in these changes. You know, it's not interesting where we get an agency team that says uh, where where a reporter talks to an agency team and they say, you know, this really surprised us. And it's refreshing, honesty, really, to be to be clear about it when when they're upfront about it. And and because you can see how this can get uh, this could really take a team by surprise. Dominic, you ever been in a situation like this where an announcement, you know, created a media story that maybe you weren't quite ready for or that surprised you? I don't, I don't think anything analogous to this. I say my big takeaway from this one was one, I don't know where I've been living, but I was not, I was not aware of the Choco Taco and I'm, I'm regretting that I only came aware of it as it's going away. Well, oh I'm man, so you are my, missing out. I know. And I'm, I'm grateful <laughs> nobody told my kids about it either. So, but uh, I also, I also, I, I thought of it, it had some political overtones in terms of all of this going on. And I actually wondered whether one opportunity would have been for them to sort of, in the political start is to name a successor or endorse a successor uh, to Choco Taco, which they, they didn't do, obviously. Um, but yeah, it was, I thought it was a fascinating story. And I thought, that, honestly, I thought the team handled it really well. And it, as you say, it was great that they were transparent about how surprised they were. And I thought they clearly uh, got, got together and figured out what they were going to do uh, in response. But it was fun to watch. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Ewan, tell us a little bit about what's going on over at ICF Next. Yeah, there's a really interesting story coming out of ICF Next here. Uh, they have decided to wind down their traditional advertising and platform development services. Um, and instead, they'll focus on stuff like integrated comms, business transformation, and loyalty for their commercial clients. But they'll also focus on developing industries such as health, lifestyle, and consumer goods, as well as travel and hospitality. Uh, but to focus on those aforementioned areas, ICF needed to move away from places where they were seeing less client demand, such as those traditional advertising and platform uh, development offerings. The firm did stress that it will continue its creative work, but more so with an earned fro- uh, first approach that may include storytelling across different content and platforms, um, and including paid media in some circumstances, as well as uh, brand experiences. Um, but when I asked about layoffs, an executive at the firm said it wouldn't be a significant number within the agency, but that the business shift would affect a targeted number of employees in North, Amer- uh, North America and India, primarily the latter. Um, however, there are no plans to close offices as or any offices as of now. I found the story really interesting because I, I but not totally surprising. And that's because I, I do think a lot of PR firms have had had trouble breaking through with that kind of traditional creative offering. Um, and it is important to point out, as you noted, that uh, they are going to continue to do creative, just tied to an earned first mentality. Um, but also, I, I and and Dominic will tell me if I'm wrong here, but I, I think a lot of the services that uh, CCOs or, or people with equivalent titles are looking for from PR agencies are, you know, more consulting fo- focused, more and more corporate focused in over the past few years in a lot of ways. And so I, I was not totally surprised to see them kind of refocus more on the, the traditional uh, PR aspects. And of course, they're still going to do media buying, which is a bigger part of a lot of agencies jobs now. Um, but but not totally shocked by this one. Uh, Dominic, what do you think? 
Oh, I, I had a question whether maybe it doesn't, whether it says anything more about a broad shift in the marketing mix, you know, away from advertising, uh, traditional advertising to other things. And maybe maybe this is very specific to them and their their clients. But I sort of I've heard rumblings in different places, particularly sort of maybe in B two B spaces where people are shifting money from advertising in two directions: one to more for performance marketing, where they can really measure you know direct impact and lead generation sales and all that kind of stuff. And then the other end, honestly, into comms, where they're sort of asking comms to step up and, and really be the primary owner and manager of corporate reputation. So I don't know, maybe that's a trend, maybe it's not a trend, maybe it's related to this story. But I thought there was was at least a potentially interesting angle there, not just about their own circumstances, but what did it say about marketing mix and priorities overall? Yeah, and that is something we hear a lot about, about comms uh, being the point people. Um, for the brand at large, for corporate reputation at large. And I mean, we're, we at PR Week, you know, and when we can take an editorial stance on things, we're all for it. You know, we think it's a great place for it to be because you guys really have your finger on the pulse. Uh, but also the advice you give to CEOs is a lot different than I think the CMO does in a lot of ways. So, um, okay, you can tell us a little bit about Tezo's latest campaign. Yeah, Tezo has launched a series of four tea blends, which it's dubbing as the first regenerative uh, tea line, which can be confusing when you first hear about it. But that's why the company has created a TikTok ad to provide clarification. Uh, essentially, what Tezo is doing is its new line is part of the company's multi-year transition plan to kind of reimagine its entire business approach to be regenerative. From the seedling to the packaging, um, a regenerative agricultural approach, as the ad explains, kind of gives back to soil health, the ecosystem, and the people who rely on the land. For example, what that might mean is that the people working on the farms and those in the supply chains and all the way up to the Tezo corporate team are adequately compensated for their time and given access to things like healthcare and education. Uh, more broadly, with help from a sustainability consulting firm called Pure Strategies, Tezo has created new environmentally friendly goals, such as uh, 100% reusable, recyclable, or compostable uh, packaging by 2025. Uh, but the TikTok ad itself is also regenerative. Uh, it was shot in Texas with a local crew, with many of those working on it biking and carpooling to set. And it was also shot in the director's backyard using natural light and uh, backdrops. But rather than putting on, this is perhaps the most interesting part about it all, but rather than putting the, the spot on TV, Tezo will debut its ad on TikTok and donate $1 for every TikTok view of the ad up to $250,000 to the Rodale Institute, which is a nonprofit dedicated to growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education. A fairly impressive campaign and one that's kind of leading by example on the subject of environmentally friendly practices. I want to ask Dominic a little bit about TikTok because um, I, I've had a lot of smart CCOs say to me recently just how much time they're spending monitoring TikTok, keeping an eye on TikTok, seeing what the new trends are and how people use it, you know, beyond the the things it got a reputation for, but how people are using it for news and information. So I guess my question is, is how much, uh, how much time are you spending on it, Dominic? I mean, how much, where are you researching? What are you looking at in terms of TikTok? Yeah, more and more time for sure. Um, I think what's interesting about TikTok is just the point you made about how quickly it's evolving, how, how quickly it's uh, changing, how quickly the patterns are changing. It does feel like you think you understand it, and then you know it evolves again. And I don't, I don't so much mean the way they're changing the product, but just the way people are using it. Um, and it feels you know people are breaking news on it, people are sharing ideas, people are transacting and driving commerce on it. So 
Um, I don't know that we fully got our arms around it. I think there's a lot more to do, but it is a fascinating channel and it's fascinating just how quickly it continues to evolve and change. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest challenges of figuring out your strategy and how to be successful. And I think one of the things our social team does so well is I think they really try and invest heavily in experimentation and try and you know be authentically part of the, that conversation and learn from people along the way and, and listen to the feedback. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is changing rapidly, but there's no doubt it's a force for sure. Yeah, I agree. And it's a lesson for me because I need to get on it in one form or the other. And I've been resisting all this time and it's, it's about you, time. You might find you spend a lot of um, time. It, it, the time passes quickly once you get on yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm afraid of in some ways, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you. So, um, yeah, looking forward to that. All right, Dominic, thanks so much for joining us this week. Again, Dominic Carr, uh, the head of communications at Lyft. Ewan, thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, and thanks for your insight on the biggest marketing communication stories of the week. Just a few public service announcements before we wrap up for the day. The PR Week Awards U.S. will be back in New York in March. Uh, they are open for nominations right now, but they won't be for long. So get your submissions in. Same thing for Best Places to Work 2022. Again, open for submissions. So if you have those, follow the directions on our website. And we will be back in Chicago this October for PR Decoded and the Purpose Awards 2022. The agenda is available on the website as well as information on the location and how to get tickets and all of that. So once again, thanks to Dominic. Thanks for you and for joining us. And we will see you next week on the next edition of the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.